Hi, everyone, and welcome to the L&D Challenges podcast. We have a wonderful guest here today, Sally Dunn from Choice Support, a fabulous charity as well, which we're going to learn a little bit about today. So thanks for listening. And this series is all about learner engagement. So to start us off, how about, Sally, you give us a little intro about your role and what you're focused on there. And if you could run into a bit about the charity you work for, that would be wonderful. So we'd love to hear that as well. Absolutely. So I work for a charity and called Choice Support, and we provide support to people with learning disabilities, mental health needs, people who are autistic, so the kind of full range. We have lots of different ways we do that, predominantly something called supported living, so people live in their own homes, and we provide staff to go and support them to have the lives of their choosing. But we do have some day centres and more traditional residential kind of care settings, but it's all about being well-being of the people we support. So that's the charity I work for. My role there is learning and development lead. So I lead a team of eight people who are tasked with finding ways to engage with learners to enable them to provide support that is of a good quality. And we've got something called the mum's test in care so that you expect that your mum or your relative would have. So that's the kind of benchmark we always have. So would you be happy with that care so your relative? So yeah, so we're responsible for the training and we do an array of things. So we will do what you would imagine like first aid training and moving and handling and safeguarding, but also leadership, helping people to be more purposeful, working through resilience. And we've had up to a lot through the pandemic around that. And about the well-being of staff as well. So we deliver things like mental health first aid. So beneficial for the people who support, but also for staff. So yeah, one of our key values is about well-being in our team. So yeah, that, that jumps out for me with the type of work your staff must be doing, the wellbeing piece. So what have you delivered on that front over recent years? Oh, absolutely. So I, th- I think when the pandemic first hit, we recognised that staff were getting burnt out. It's only in the last few weeks that people have been able to not have to wear masks every day at work, for example, oh, wow. um, in the care sector. Yeah, so we have been really mindful of staff who are coming to work, maybe seeing nobody else, doing very long shifts. Because in the care sector, as soon as someone had COVID, they weren't allowed to be at work for weeks and then we had to replace them. So people were getting burnt out. So we developed a course specifically about the well-being of staff who help with their resilience and their um, yeah, their positive mental well-being. So we designed that. We also run the Mental Health First Aid England course that people might have heard of that is used across the country around being able to recognise poor health in your colleagues. So kind of using like the first aid model where you kind of would look if someone's got a cut, what you would do before the professionals get there. And we do the same around first aid for mental health as well. So recognising that in our colleagues and in a good listening ear and enabling people to have the skills. I think as well changing the culture so that we recognise that we're not just about the people we support, but that we need to look out for each other as staff. And so being able to be authentic. For me, when we talk about barriers to learn and when people aren't authentic, that is one of the biggest barriers for trainers. So about staff being able to be authentic and say when they're struggling and know that people understand that and they're there to support and have the skills. So yes, yeah, yeah. that's one of the big things we worked on through the pandemic. Very nice. I don't actually know about the uh, Mental Health England Program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Mental Health First Aid England initially were started in Australia, but they now, their kind of mantra, I guess, is to have everybody have the skills to support people with mental health needs. And they were one in four people, as that's their goal to set up with. So I think it's one in 40 at the moment. People in England have had some sort of training. It's not for care staff, it's for any. So 
if you're a builder or you are a painter and decorator, whatever you are in life, it's a set of skills to be able to recognize when someone might be having poor mental health and kind of a model of providing good listening skills non-judgmentally to support them to take control and get the support they need. So rather than telling people what to do, it's about signposting people to get the support they need. So yeah, so it's a really it is a really good project. And we at Choice Support, a number of us are qualified to deliver Mental Health First Aid England's pro- programme. So we have as a requirement that all our managers and people in our leadership role have to have had mental health first aid training so they can recognize those needs but we have it open to anybody so we run a course at least once a month initially they were face-to-face but with the pandemic the model changed to be webinar so we deliver webinars so for webinar of program to anybody who's got an interest in recognizing their own mental health because it focuses a lot about your own well-being because you can't help someone else if your well-being isn't been addressed so it's a lot about looking at your own and about in care, sometimes we feel a bit selfish if we are not just focusing on other people. And that doesn't help with burnout. So this view that it's not selfish to look after yourself. And we advocate something called the happiness hour. So at least an hour a week for us around self-care. But we've taken it a step further. And I don't know about other sectors, but a lot of people work very long hours or they might work more hours than they should. So we advocate having this hour at the end of the working day, whatever that is, to look after your own mental well-being and seeing it as not selfish, but an essential part of your role to look after yourself. Because if you're ill, you can't look after anyone else. And do people generally take that hour when they please, or is it recommended you do it on a Thursday lunchtime or something? Whenever. So it's whenever makes sense for them. And it can be split. It might be somebody's having two half hour slots or whatever that might be. And it's funny, we we just had a course last week and we were talking about the variety of what that looks like. So for me, Gardening would be like a definite no. When somebody talks about their allotment and someone else talks about making a wildlife pond, and that sounded like not like fun to me. So mine is reading a book and having something naughty to eat and drink. But it's about you personally identifying what that looks like for you. And on the mental health cost, we spend time looking at that. If people haven't got ideas, we kind of do this activity around self-care big and go to help people identify some things that they can go away and try. So yeah, so we advocate that and we advocate that on all our courses as well, this happiness hour and about people looking after their own well-being. And I think I mentioned that before. So as a organization, we spent a lot of time during the pandemic being really clear on purpose. So each team has a purpose and they've identified their values underpinning it. So the L&D team, we identified our purpose as creating opportunities for holistic well-being for all staff and the people we support and also people to re- achieve their potential. So that's kind of everything we do is based on that. So about staff's potential and the people we support. And underpinning that, we have these core values we've agreed on. And one of them is well-being. So when we're creating course content and we're looking at engaging with staff, we're looking at how is this going to improve the well-being of people coming? What are the barriers that might impact well-being? So example, being on a webinar for 10 hours straight is going to impact well-being and is going to affect engagement as a consequence because people just can't manage that amount of time. So yeah, so we have these values. So we have well-being, we have flexibility. So about can we be flexible in our office? So again, when we think about engagement, support workers and I'm sure this is in other sectors too we have staff who have very complicated home lives and they work shifts so being able to come on training can be quite 
difficult. So one of the things we've done recently is some other training at all sorts of funny hours. I did some webinars, 10.30 till midnight to help with waking night staff and also for people who, when their children are in bed, I can't say people are desperate to do their update of their safeguarding training, for example, but they've valued being able to come. And actually some of the courses have had the most engagement have been the ones that are at funny hours, do weekends as well and things like that. So but that's yeah. fitting this in around the staff's 24-7 period. Is that what's going on here? So you've got people working all different types of hours within the business. Absolutely. So, and because the spread of the people we support is so wide, but some people need 24 hour care. So there is somebody in that house all the time, including awake at night. Some people have a few hours here and there and staff are going from one place to another providing packages of care and support. But yeah, I think the people that we have in care are often there because they need flexibility in their life. And so that also means in their training. So they're not always available in the hours that you would traditionally think training would happen because they're either providing the support or and can't be released. We have a big problem about turnover of staff that the care sector is struggling at the moment. So yeah, so we have that they're needed on shift or they're needed in their childcare or other care and responsibilities they have outside of work. We have a lot of staff who are at university and studying other things alongside, so they're not available again when they're at uni. So have opportunity for learning out of traditional times has been really beneficial there. Also, obviously, some people come at the same time as everybody else. And if so if a member of staff comes at 10.30 at night until midnight, and yes. <laughs> that's quite a heavy concept to get through, is are they recognised for that work? Well, yeah, they get paid, yeah, of course. So, so they're either... So in some of the places that they're working nights, it might be that the person they support has gone to bed or, or doesn't need it. So they're in an office doing the training. So rather than it time that they wouldn't be doing anything else much, they're able to do the training there. So that's at work. Or if they're doing it and they're not physically at work, they get paid bank hours. So they get paid the hours for doing that or they get time off in lieu, whichever one. So they get to use that time somewhere else, whichever they're choosing makes sense for them yeah. yeah they don't just do it for nobody came at 10 30 just because they wanted to spend an hour and a half with it. yeah that's like ultimate mastery of learning or engagement if you're getting yeah to... i can't say i've got to there no but we have courses that are mandatory that they have to do to enable them to continue in their role so and we also have an attendance and training bonus so people because we had a compliance issue of people not being able to meet the training needs so people do the training that's required of them. E-learning and webinars we have at the moment, we don't have the face-to-face -face element because it's just too hard to run enough sessions. But if they do the 11 e-learning we have as mandatory and their safeguarding and mental capacity act to train webinar in day, every three months they get an attendance, they get a bonus. They've also got to have attended too. So it's attendance and compliance. And so of course people wanted to be compliant then because they wanted the extra money. And then when they weren't always available to attend. So that's how we started adding the, okay, well, if they can't attend in the day and we don't want people to be penalised, what can we do? Okay, let's start doing them at weekends and evenings and nights. We're not doing them every, they're not happening all the time. They are scheduled every quarter to make sure that there is enough of the different times that people can do the training if they choose. And these are delivered by yourself and your team who yeah. typically work office hours. Is that right? And you're, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I'd say that the trainers, I mean, they used to probably between seven and seven, they probably used to have been around because the, before the pandemic, they were on the road and they were traveling. So that would be normal for them. 
as well-being is important to the team as well as for everybody else, we kind of looked at, we'd like to run some courses on an evening, so traditional evening, six till half seven, some on a night, some at weekends. And we asked the team, what would their preference be? So some people have been, oh, I'd rather do a Saturday morning. And someone else has said they'd rather do a night. So fitting around their personal circumstances. And we're not talking all the time. So every quarter, we'll have a couple of these different out of hours. It isn't every week. There wouldn't be the demand there. Because the majority of people do go in the normal hours. But yeah. it's the people, I say, who flexibly need a little bit of a different approach. How's that bonus model working? That's... So we had the model for a, so for a long time. We had the attendance bonus. It was just attendance. So if you weren't offset, you got £150 pro rata every quarter. And tied to that, we had about if you failed to attend training, you also lost the attendance bonus. But I felt that was very stick rather than carrot because if you missed the training, then there was no push to come again because you'd already lost your money so it would be like well I failed to attend last week why should I go next week so that didn't seem like that really was that help and we would always have an array of all these different reasons why people legitimately hadn't attended the training and then we had to look at well what's deserved and what's not deserved for the bonus and that got really difficult and took a lot of time from people and lost from the purpose our team's purpose, and I come back to the purpose, is about creating opportunities for holistic well-being for staff and the people we support. We want people to come on the training, not because we want them to be compliant, although we do. We want them to come so they can provide safe support and to have some good quality skills. So we wanted to encourage people to keep to, to come rather than penalise non-compliance. So I say we changed the model to spoke to different departments and staff and kind of got kind of a feel what people thought that we changed it so if you so now if you miss the training that's fine obviously we don't want that to happen though yeah as long as you book and attend in this quarter then you will still get the bonus so it is motivating our compliance so our e-learning compliance during the pandemic it reduced it was on a negative it was getting it, it all a key performance indicator is 90 percent compliance with e-learning and it was dropping to 70 percent so it really gone down during the pandemic which interest at the beginning it went up i think because people didn't go anywhere but then it was kind of like people were tired and they kind of got fed up so it's gone down and our webinar training so once all we feel we need to talk to people not just to do the e-learning that was in the 60s and our kpi for that is 85 percent so since we've changed the model we're at 92 percent compliant with our e-learning so on our webinar, we're not quite at the 85%, but we are at, we're at 82. And if we take out our new starters and some of our casual staff who actually aren't doing work, we have met the, the standard. So it has made a big difference. It's kind of, obviously not everybody likes that. And some people don't like the kind of characteristic approach. And we have other things if we want to engage people, but the money side of it is working and it's been achievable. And that's why some of people have said, oh, but I can't come on that day because I'm the carer for my autistic child. We've been, don't worry, we can do it on a night or we can do it on a weekend or what can we do to support you to be able to take part? Because being flexible is one of our key values, as is being person-centred. So that kind of looking at what the individual needs, not just what everybody needs as well. So it's helped us to look at what can we do to kind of put them into practice and really help the one and the staff to get through. This podcast is brought to you by AssembleU, the audio learning specialists. Adam here, co-founder of AssembleU. 
My cousin Rich and I started Assemble You in 2022 after finding we were doing a lot of our own personal development using podcasts and audiobooks. We loved audio as a format and wanted to combine the convenience of listening to something with formal, outcome-driven learning that had real impact. The result is a power skills library that helps coach and guide listeners through critical topics like leadership, mental health, well-being, productivity, growth, sustainability, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Each Assemble You audio lesson is succinct and backed by research and real-life experience. They all include additional learning aids, including downloadable keypoint infographics, further reading lists, and testing. Listen to some free samples or find out more about how Assemble You can support your bespoke audio requirements by visiting assembleu.com. Yeah, it's amazing flexibility you're offering there. It's really interesting. The other thing I'm thinking through here, so you're measuring the impact of that in terms of attendance is, are you able to connect to the impact of the business in any way, be it performance or feels like there's a lot of kind of mental health and well-being, so stability of staff, retention. Is there anything there that you're able to connect to this program with? I would say... So we do monitor some of those things and they're quite, with some of the ones you said, the kind of business impact, you can't really see that till six months a year after, probably, is is what I would say. But certainly, what I could say, so we get contractually and legally, we have to have certain training in place. Otherwise, when we get inspected by our regulator, which is the Care Quality Commission, we get into trouble. And at worst, we can be shut down, but we have to give the figures of that and We've been in a much better place lane inspections when we've been able to evidence A, people have had the training, but B, that they can link it to difference in the workplace. So they don't just ask, has Bob been on the safeguarding training? They ask the so what kind of question. And training has always done really well in terms of what's been recorded by CQC. It's often been complemented. Also, we've had the Great Places to Work initiative and training has been highlighted on that as one of the areas that people talk highly of as well. Get the top 25 i can't I, we've just recently had it and it was definitely still in the great places to work but we had quite a good score on that as well so we can see those areas we do have as i said we have got some problems around turnover as an industry and we've created some solutions around those so we have some mandatory induction standards we have to meet and we've created a program for support workers who traditionally wouldn't have inducted people to have the skills to do that and in terms of measuring that for that group, we, because we're charities, so we don't have lots of money. But if support workers complete what we call LEAP, so it's our leadership potential program, and successfully induct or contribute to the induction of a new starter, and they stay six months, they get a £50 bonus. And if they stay another six months, they get another £50. So we'll be able to measure whether that has been successful because we can see how many groups of people have managed to get both lots of vouchers who've done the program. So that has got some measure in it. Yeah. Ready. But yeah. we have the same, yeah, the mental health first aid impact. We monitor as a business sickness levels. So for example, we know how many people are off with poor mental health at any one time. We know about exit interviews if people have mental health and things like that. So we can monitor whether our strategy around mental health is improving and whether that's getting better in terms of the number of days people are having off because of their mental health. Although, of course, that's kind of a double-edged sword. We want people to feel they can have time off if their mental health needs it to as well. So even if that goes up, that 
won't necessarily mean that our strategy is not working. It's that people can report more honestly why they're having time off. So what we're measuring really more is how many days overall people are having off, not just the mental health. Because I would hope it would increase the reporting that people can say, today's not a good day for me and that that's accepted and people understand that and can provide that support. So... Yeah, I've no, not been in a conversation where mental health has come up this much, actually, in in learning. It feels like you you have a real duty of care of your staff Absolutely. in your, your charity. And I sense that they, they're under quite a bit of pressure, are they, in the type of work that they do? Yeah, absolutely. I think the care sector, I'm sure lots of other people feel this as well, but this is the sector I know. We have people who perhaps are not getting paid the highest, doing very difficult and skilled jobs and making a lot of decisions and dealing with challenge. Part of the role is supporting people who may be at end of life, people who are experiencing poor mental health themselves and challenges that might come with that. They work really long hours. Because the pay isn't great in the sector, they do a lot of extra hours to make that up. So the, the working week is perhaps any other sectors maybe who are, I, I don't know that for sure, but, but I know that ours, they're, they're on minimum wage, a lot of support staff. So the impact on mental health, as well as the work impact, the impact of the financial situation we've got at the moment, that's put a lot of concern and staff, the food bank kind of scenario I've heard mentioned. So yeah. I think we as an organisation have about, I hope, value, the whole business is about opportunities for happiness. That's the purpose of, of the whole business. And that's for staff and the people we support. And so we kind of feel you can't do that for one group of people without doing that for staff as well. So it is important, just as we'd expect staff to recognise the mental health of the people they support and provide good support around that. We expect that staff are supported in that as much as we can. Um, so yeah, it is a key area, he would say. Yeah, fascinating. I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but you're coming up to 20 years at Choice Support. <laughs> yes. If um, I'm not allowed to share, <laughs> I can cut it out if I'm not allowed to share. But, um, and that's fine. I don't mind that at all. I mean, I'm imagining a gold watch and some balloons and confetti and a big celebration for you. I work on a charity. It's a well done, maybe. Oh, before the pandemic, we did have a big celebration, not for me, but people <laughs> like a long service kind of celebration. So that has happened before. Yeah. So I have been here a long time. I haven't been in the same role the whole time. I started as an assistant team manager. So my background is providing the actual care and support. So I worked in a hospital that was shut in. So when people, long stay hospitals with people with learning disabilities, and then we had Valiant People 2001 that said those should shut, although we've now got transforming care and they haven't really shut. But I started in that work of shutting hospitals and people getting opportunities to have everyday lives and do the things that everybody else kind of takes for granted. So I did that. And then and I was a manager. And then I got an opportunity. We had this buzzword at the time called person-centered planning and everybody was given an opportunity to have one and they wanted some people to be able to train staff to do them. So I got an opportunity to do that and I really liked it. And then a few weeks later, there was a training job. And because I'd done this person-centered planning training, the trainer course, I got asked to apply and then kind of from then I've been as, it was a trainer, then it was the manager and now I'm the lead. So I've had different roles in the time that I've been at Choice Support, but I've stayed because of the value-driven work that I do. My values are very aligned. I'd find it very difficult to work somewhere that didn't care about people in the way that the organisation does. And that was very numbers-orientated. So I said about compliance, I want 
people to be compliant, but not because I want to tick a box. And the organization doesn't want that. They want the why. Why do we need to do it? And then making a difference in people's lives. So yeah, that's what's important to me. Wonderful purpose. So over this time, you must have seen a fair bit of change amongst the staff and the programs that worked or didn't work. Are there, is there any experiences or stories from that journey you've been on that you could share and shoehorn in the theme of engagement? But if not, I'm still interested. <laughs> I think that the, so historically, we did a lot of face-to-face training. So I've been around long enough that I was there when we introduced e-learning. So before that, it was all face-to-face. And we had, so I suppose, a national organization. So we would have the same classes running, maybe on the same day in different locations with low numbers, but we needed them to happen because of our compliance and our duty of care. And I would find in the past that, so sometimes small numbers can be very engaging, but sometimes it can be overwhelming for people as well. So you get the either really great conversations or you get the no one saying anything and you're pulling teeth because people feel quite overwhelmed. They're quite on display. I've had training courses where one person has come or two face to face and it's quite intense then for people sometimes. Some people find training really scary, particularly the kind of courses we're doing like first aid courses when you have to do something practical. They can feel really quite on display. I've had the other way as well when we've got like 20, 25 people have turned up because they weren't on the list and then that's really hard, but people don't speak again or somebody dominates it. So I think the change that we've had is been able to, with the technology, get the right course for the right reason so that people engaged when they do come. So for example, at the webinars like we're having now a conversation, as an organization, we've been able to, instead of running four safeguarding courses on the same day and getting four in each place, we can run an hour and a half and people from across the whole country get to come. And in terms of engaging, that means they get to learn from each other. So not everybody likes webinar and some people prefer to be around people, but I don't necessarily think that means that they learn more. They just have a preference to be with people more often. But that ha- that engagement of not isolating people and thinking, oh, we have this problem in Wakefield and, oh, we have that same problem in Bedford and this is what we've done. So that getting to meet a lot more staff. So we've got an organisation of 2,500 staff and instead of seeing the same, some of our areas have got 30 staff. So you're just seeing the same 30 staff on training. You're now seeing a much wider pool. So I think that's engaging in terms of the learning you can get from each other. It's also mean we can offer far more variety of our training because we're not having to duplicate the same thing across eight locations. So I think that that's part of that. I think it's been able to recognize that different people need different things. So it's interesting just like we've got a lot of people, everyone we support's got a need. A lot of our staff have those needs too. So we have autistic staff. We have staff who have ADHD. We have staff who have dyslexia and things like that. So, so having a variety of offer, so the e-learning webinar and face-to-face, means that it's been able to meet those different needs. So we've got some, and our face-to-face, we have the fidget toys available and things that people can use. On a webinar, people can do that culture if they want to on screen or discreetly. If your topic's quite distressing, for example, they can turn their camera off. They can pace around the room if they need to. We've got staff who maybe are the carer for the relative with dementia and they can attend the training at home and not be worried about that relative because they're still in the same space. So the flexibility of the different offer in terms of you can do a webinar or you can do face-to-face has enabled people to not worry about 
those problems they have in their own life. And so when they're not worried about those, then the engagement level goes up rather than I've got to get back for this and I've got childcare issues and I've got this. So I think the variety of tech has helped with things. Yeah. I'm wondering also, so you've moved into a more, over the years, it feels like a more kind of scalable program. So multiple staff from across the country can attend the same session. So less learning in isolation, less pockets. So you've not only sort of brought the collaboration there, but I imagine there's also a cultural benefit to the business in that you're helping staff connect with people that go through similar challenges, but maybe never met each other before. Is it? Yeah, absolutely. I think as an organization, we're moving towards anyway. We want to kind of flatten the hierarchy in terms of reporting and have more decision-making closer to people. So instead of having to wait for a senior director to say yes or no to something, people in a team can make decisions. So that as an organization, we've wanted to do that. And we've called that journey purposeful. So I've talked about our purpose in that in the L&D team. But with that purposeful journey, because now we are able to communicate across the organization, that's easier to spread and to learn from each other. Whereas before, I think it would have been a much slower move because when you're on a webinar and you hear someone talking about purposeful in Wakefield, for example, and things that they're doing as a support worker, you get other support workers going, oh, but we're not able to do that. Maybe we could. And so that's kind of that culture change to a learning culture and not a blame culture and being told what to do is spreading because people are able to connect wider. We're in a lot of different learning groups. So as well as the traditional learning webinars and face-to-face, we have a lot of kind of working groups, maybe working on the action learning set kind of model. And that enables people from across the whole organization. So the right people to be in the virtual space. And then those groups do meet up face-to-face as well, but in a way that makes a lot more sense. Whereas before you would have people have traveled five hours to get there for an hour meeting. Whereas now we're having a lot of the connection like this and then been really clear, but we need to meet up and do this and it having a purpose. But yeah, so I think the culture change, the tech does help that and being able to be across the organization. So yeah, it helps you. You're not alone with challenges, but also there's a much wider pool for solutions than there were in the past. And as a trainer, having trained in all those environments, I just thinking back to five years ago, you would get the groups of people thinking their challenges were different everywhere else. It would be on the training. I hear what you're saying, but the people we support don't communicate. For example, that's one of my pet hates people. Everyone communicates. Or the people here are far more disabled than anywhere else. Or that project won't work here because, whereas now it's okay, but you're saying that. What do you think? Oh, well, actually the people we support I've got the same needs and this is how we've overcome it. So it kind of has stopped some of, I'm not saying that all the barriers have gone, but some of the barriers of being a silo and not seeing wider have disappeared with a much more of the geography taken out of the mix for training approach, I think. Yeah. Face-to-face though, don't get me wrong. We haven't got rid of face-to-face and sometimes people do like to connect in real life, but we are more selective of, is this the best type of training for this need and what's going to be the benefit but yeah people we do during the pandemic we were doing first aid in people's gardens because we weren't allowed to go in people's homes and we were doing we were posting mannequins out to people's homes and we were watching them do cpr on the screen and we did those things because we had to but we don't want to do that all the time and so we do those things face to face and others so just the breadth of opportunities we have to find a course that's delivered in the right way. I think that helps with engagement. So 
if everything's e-learning or everything's face-to-face, you, you don't get that. And so you don't get the learning outcomes you want and you don't meet the needs of the variety of staff you've got coming on those training as well. Oh, that's lovely. That's a really nice wrap up there, I think, because I'm thinking we hear so much about blended learning and you truly are delivering that to a really diverse community as well of learners that you have. Excellent. Fascinating to hear today about, yeah, I say it earlier, but your duty of care, how you truly embrace the learning department and function as ensuring that mental health and well-being is at the forefront for your staff. So Excellent. sharing that so much, we'll have to get you back at some point for another chat and yeah thank, thanks for all the great work from, from the charity as well it's it's one we're well aware of and, and really appreciate it so credit to you and your staff thanks for joining us we'll see you again thank you